This week, the string of bankruptcies continues as First Energy, Nine West, EV Energy, and VER Technologies all file for Chapter 11. Cobalt's bankruptcy plan is confirmed, and Senvio files its Chapter 11 plan. More on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in New York. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Karen Lund. And I'm Nick Lichtenberg. We're reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. On this week's Deep Dive segment, the Toys R Us team will provide a framework for how to think about certain pockets of value and will analyze how stakeholders will have to use the bankruptcy code to maximize that value. It's Sunday, April 8th. Late Saturday, First Energy Solutions filed Chapter 11 in the Northern District of Ohio with $3.6 billion in debt, citing, quote, well-documented and rapid expansion in natural gas supplies, which has caused electricity prices to plummet. As a consequence, the debtor said its profits from power sales have decreased. The debtors are seeking a dual-path reorganization comprising a creditor-supported plan and the option to sell some or all of their assets. In a presentation, they laid out the process for one of these assets, FES Retail, saying that indicative bids had been due March 29th and that 17 counterparties had signed NDAs. The filings also include a standstill agreement between First Energy Solutions, certain creditors, and the parent entity, the non-debtor utility First Energy Corp. The standstill establishes a process for, quote, coordinated and orderly discovery regarding claims between the debtor entities on the one hand and FE and its affiliates on the other hand and the resolution of such claims. Outside of bankruptcy court, the district court for the Northern District of Ohio denied the request by the Ohio Valley Electric Corporation to withdraw FES's rejection motion regarding the two companies' power purchase agreement from the bankruptcy court. FES says the agreement costs it $58 million per year. The debtors, however, filed a letter on Friday signaling that they'll seek reconsideration of the decision in light of the district court's findings that both FERC and the bankruptcy court have concurrent jurisdiction over the OVAC contract, and the debtors would need to obtain approval from both adjudicators to reject the intercompany power purchase agreement. On Monday, EV Energy Partners, with almost $650 million in debt, filed for Chapter 11 with a pre-pack that aligned with the RSA it had agreed to with lenders and note holders several weeks before. The agreement would give new revolving loans to the pre-petition RBL and 95% of equity to senior note holders. Existing equity holders in the Houston-based upstream MLP would share the remaining 5% and receive warrants for 8% of the new stock. The debtor's assets include a wide swath of the continental U.S., with flowing reserves in the Barnett Shale, San Juan Basin, Appalachian Basin, and Permian, to name a few. The combined plan confirmation and disclosure statement hearing is scheduled for May 15th. And on Friday, Nine West, New York-based footwear, accessories, women's apparel, and jeanswear company filed for Chapter 11 in the Southern District of New York to facilitate a sale of its Nine West and Bandolino footwear and handbag business and to, quote, right-size its capital structure around its profitable and growing businesses, including one jeanswear group, the Jewelry Group, the Casper Group, and Anne Klein. The company entered into an RSA with parties that hold or control 78% of its secured term debt and more than 89% of its unsecured term debt. Nine West says it's entered into a stocking horse asset purchase agreement with Authentic Brands Group, and the sale will be subject to a competitive sales process. To facilitate that process, the debtors have also secured a commitment for $300 million in dip financing. Following more than 20 hours of testimony and oral argument, 
that Cobalt International Energy debtors received planned confirmation from Judge Marvin Isger on Thursday. Judge Isger stated that while, quote, the sales process produced disappointing results to all concerned, it was done with, quote, integrity and in good faith. The debtors reached settlement with objectors Witten Petroleum and the UCC, which established a $23 million reserve account for Class 5 claims and an opt-out for Witten Petroleum. At the end of the hearing, the debtors reported that the other objector, the Ad Hoc Committee of Unsecured Note Holders, would not pursue an appeal. On Monday, the Sunveo debtors filed their Chapter 11 plan and disclosure statement, which generally filed the construct of the RSA, reached with the Ad Hoc First Lien Committee, except for one change. Secondly, note holders would now receive an undisclosed amount of warrants instead of the 0.5% of reorganized equity they were to receive under the original RSA. This change follows last week's appointment of Sushil Kirpalani of Quinn Emanuel as case examiner by the U.S. trustee. The disclosure statement hearing is set for May 16th. On the island of Puerto Rico, the Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority released the latest revised draft fiscal plans on Thursday night. Some, but not all, of the fiscal plans for the six government-owned entities have been revised as many as six times. The PROMESA Oversight Board had requested changes to all six plans the week before, and on Monday had issued violation notices regarding two of them, for the Highways and Transportation Authority and the University of Puerto Rico. Governor Ricardo Rosselló said he would release the plans, but vowed that no state employee job cuts, no pension cuts, and no additional labor reform would be included in them. Governor Rosselló hit back at a letter from U.S. House Natural Resources Chairman Rob Bishop of Utah, saying he has a, quote, preference that bondholders obtain more money over the well-being of Puerto Rico citizens. In a letter to Bishop and the committee, Rosselló said that once a new fiscal plan for the Commonwealth is certified, he would support petitioning the Title III court to compel the Oversight Board to file a plan of adjustment with the goal of Puerto Rico emerging from Title III by year-end. In the midst of this, at midweek, the Puerto Rico Senate unanimously approved a resolution, ordering the island's Treasury Department to, quote, immediately cut off funding for the Oversight Board. The resolution cited, among other things, the, quote, abuses of the Colonial Fiscal Oversight Board, and in particular the, quote, exorbitant salary of executive director, Natalie Juresco, at $625,000. One of the oversight board's current expenses, the retention of independent examiner Cobrain Kim, yielded a second interim report this week. Puerto Rico's cash position grew this week to more than $2 billion as of March 23rd, up from $1.928 billion as of March 16th according to the Treasury's latest weekly cash flow variance report for the Treasury single account. Besides the stories above, other top-read stories this week were number one, Toys R Us. Toys discloses $40.6 million in aggregate successful bids for certain real estate assets. Number two, VER Technologies files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in Delaware. And number three, Monotronics. Ascent Capital Group CEO steps down, company general counsel appointed to roll. And now we'll pass it over to Jim in Houston for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. Well, thank you, Nick and Karen, and greetings from the Deep South, where we too are belabored by this blast of Arctic air, by which I mean it is 71 degrees Fahrenheit and a little overcast. Anyways, onward and upward in terms of temperature for y'all north of me, I hope. Monday, April 9th, is the first day hearing for Nine West, and we will be live blocking. Objections to second day relief are due in iHeart. 
Tuesday, April 10th, a confirmation and DS replies are due for HCR Manor Care, an earnings call for Guitar Center, and objections to the motion to dismiss are due in Zohar. And just parenthetically speaking, I'd like to recommend the Twitter feed of Ms. Lynn Tilton to y'all. It is liberally larded with hard-won lessons from her storied career as an industrialist and innovator. Here's one. Last night's sunset reminds us that we can choose hope and beauty over battle and destruction. She's got a point there, you know. And here's another. It's accompanied by a picture of some sort of aquatic-looking bird taking flight. And it says, Outer beauty inspires inner beauty, giving flight to compassion on the wings of our greater angels. You know, I like that one. So there's plenty of helpful insight here for the entrepreneur if you're feeling a little blue and not in the mood to spin your Hank Williams records. Anyways, Wednesday, the 11th of April, brings us a potential sale hearing for Bonton, a joint administration hearing motion omnibus hearing in Toys R Us, which is, by the way, the subject of this week's deep dive, and an earnings call for Albertsons, the grocer which owns Randall's here in Houston, which, of course, has that excellent fried chicken, which is almost as good as my mama's. Thursday, we have Rite Aid's earnings, a Toys R Us sales hearing, and a second-day hearing for iHeart. And on Friday the 13th, HCR Manicare stands defiantly against centuries of superstition with the combined plan and DS hearing at 2 p.m. Eastern Time in the great state of Delaware. All right, that's enough of my yakking. Back to y'all in New York. Thanks, Jim. As always, we'll be on the lookout for those developments in the coming days. Now we'll turn to our deep dive look at Toys R Us. This week, Mark Fisher sat down with senior legal analyst Julia Winters and senior distressed analyst Nick Williams to assess certain pockets of value and how the debtors and stakeholders will have to maneuver the bankruptcy code to achieve their plans and hopefully maximize that value. Thank you. So I'm here today with the uh, toys team. I'm um, joined by our senior legal analyst, Julia Winters, and our senior distressed analyst, Nick Williams. Thank you both for being here. Uh, so the goal today, I want to, you know, everybody knows what's going on in Toys R Us and uh, sort of how we got to the position that we're going, that we're into right now with uh, the liquidation signs on the store um, and many of the different plans that the company has for both the U.S. and the rest of the world. But what I wanted to explore a little bit is, one, the legal side of what they're trying to do, and then second, we're going to try and build a, a framework for people to, to look at value here. So first on the legal side, uh, Julia, uh, you know, as I said, um, everybody knows what is happening with Toys R Us. You look in the paper, you read the word liquidation, you go to their store, there's a giant sign on it that says Toys R Us liquidating. Um, and then even in court, the debtors uh, had talked about the ins that the U.S. entity was insolvent, and then some of the parties were pushing for a liquidation. So my first question to you is... Um, is liquidation the same as Chapter 7? And uh, if you could just talk to us about the process from converting potentially a case or if the debtors will convert uh, the case from a Chapter 11 to a Chapter 7. Yeah, so first of all, um, Chapter 7 and liquidation are not um, synonymous. That There are other ways to liquidate besides filing or converting to Chapter 7. Um, uh, you can have a Chapter 11 plan of liquidation where you are, just as you would in a Chapter 7 case, selling off all of your assets uh, and not having any going concern company at the other end. 
Um, but that is done in the context of a plan where creditors get to vote on it. So the fact that Toys R Us is liquidating does not mean that they are necessarily converting uh, to Chapter 7. And in fact, nobody has filed a motion yet to convert uh, to a Chapter 7. So, I mean, that's really interesting. And, um, you know, let, let's talk about the context of what the company wants to do or said that they want to do. You know, I kind of call it a, a menu of, uh, of different options here. There's the U.S. stores, but even in the U.S. stores, they said maybe they'll save some uh, along with um, a sale of Canada. There's the Taj entities, which both Europe and Asia and other parts of the world um, that could be sold as a going concern. There are leases, some of which they've um, already assigned, uh, unexpired leases to other people. And then, of course, there's the master lease agreement with their PropGo entities. So, you know, with all of those different balls in the air, so to speak, um, you know, what's the right approach here for this company um, with, with, with liquidation or Chapter 7? Yeah, I, I think... I'm not sure that anyone knows the answer to that question yet, and I think that might be a big reason why um, the debtors have pushed out the hearing on this wind-down plan and wind-down budget that was supposed to happen on March 27th. Um, when they filed their initial strategy for the U.S. side, it was essentially to um, you know to continue the store closing process that they had started uh, on a much smaller scale already um, with the same consultants. And I don't think anybody was opposed to that. Um, the piece of it that drew the, the most uh, ire was um, their plan to bifurcate administrative expenses. So what they said was, we wanna pay all the wind down expenses um, you know the the uh, vendors and the the trade claimants who we need to conduct these store closings. We want to convince them that we're going to pay them in full, but we don't necessarily have the money to pay all of our administrative claims. It's so you know somewhat over somewhere over four hundred million just for for vendors. Um, and so we want to bifurcate those claims and, enjoin vendors from seeking to get paid until we sort out this wind down. And as you might expect, um, vendors hated that idea and filed over 40 objections in the course of, I think, three or four days. Um, and, and so when the debtors first presented this idea of how they might liquidate the U.S. side, they ended up going forward on an interim basis. So they didn't ask to have all of this signed and sealed and delivered. Um, and, and now they've pushed off the final hearing on that until um, April 11th. And I wouldn't be surprised if that gets pushed again. Um, but going back to your original point about the complexities here and the menu of options, the fact that there are so many intertwining pieces beyond just the U.S. stores, there's the IP, which crosses over between um, the, the Asia and European businesses and the U.S. side, which owns the IP, um, there's the shared services of, you know, the back office stuff that is uh, done on behalf of the entire company out of the U.S. Uh, entities. Uh, all of these intertwining pieces make the decision of how to liquidate just that much more complex. Uh, and I think 
Um, I, I would imagine that there's uh, very little sleep happening at <laughs> Toys R Us headquarters these days. Great. And um, who do you think would benefit or who would, which party you think would be pushing uh, for a chapter seven? You know, I, I'm not sure that anyone benefits. I and mean, there's some studies um, that show that a, a Chapter 7, that unsecured creditors don't do any better in a Chapter 7 liquidation than they would do in a Chapter 11 liquidation. Um, creditors lose a lot of control um, and a lot of leverage in negotiations when a case is converted. Uh, you know, a Chapter 7 trustee is an outsider, right? And... Um, and so, you know, creditors may also worry about, you know, am I, do, do I want to stick with the devil I know in, uh, in Toys R Us management and their advisors, or do I want to, you know, risk having somebody uh, new come in uh, to this process? So there's, there's also, you know, studies that say that converting a case just drags out the timeline f- um, for exiting bankruptcy. Uh, so, so it's not a slam dunk uh, that anyone would benefit from conversion at this point. However, if anyone were to benefit, it would be the vendors um, because they are the ones who feel that the company's current plan is really to uh, benefit secured creditors. And they, they've even gone so far to say that, you know, Toys R Us continued to um, order inventory from them after the company knew it wasn't going to be able to, to reorganize. And, and they did so um, for the sole purpose of boosting the collateral position of the secured lenders. So if anyone were to push for a conversion to Chapter 7, I I would expect it would be that group. So thanks. Now, I want to get into the value uh, part of it here, because that's probably what a lot of people are interested in. But what's interesting about this case is since it's moving so quickly and changing so 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 rapidly here, before we could talk about value, there's a lot of issues that uh, that, that need to be solved here. So the first pocket of value uh, within the entire enterprise is the Taj side, the international side. And uh, the reason why people have been drawn to that is, you know, relative to Delaware, relative to the level of, um, of EBITDA is a little, you know, less debt, uh, lower leverage. Um, some of the entities, for instance, uh, in Asia have very little, uh, you know, if, if any debt. So based on the company's projections, uh, they had as a whole uh, doing um, $250 million in EBITDA did last year and um, about flat uh, next year. And this is based on their, on, on their cleansing document. Um, but before you actually... Um, uh, b- before they could exist, there's also what we talked about many times, which is the IP agreement, which is the issue that I want to get into. Right. Um, you know, right now, what uh, the, the company also showed in their cleansing documents is another 63 million of royalty payments, increasing to 68 million uh, next year, and that's across Europe, Australia, Japan, um, and uh, in, in Asia. And then there's other agreements as well. There's a subsidy agreement that they talk about, another uh, approximately 30 million um, here. So you know, when you think about 
Taj and what they want to do, the Taj lenders uh, potentially want to do, or at least what the plan calls for is taking the business out as a going concern. Um, you have to solve that IP issue, which is essentially um, the Toys R Us uh, name on the uh, on the storefront, and then a potential a lot of other things. So the first thing I wanted to discuss, Nick, and hear your opinion on is um, when you think about the two sides. Delaware um, right now owns that IP, um, at least mm-hmm. under the Jeffrey entity, and Taj might need that IP if they want to continue those businesses are going concern. So, um, you know, from the two sides' perspectives, Delaware versus Taj, what are the talking points here? What are, um, you know, what are they going to say sitting across from each other in the negotiating table? Sure. Uh, so, you know, just to kind of frame that a little bit, um, the IP, all of the Toys R Us IP is owned by this entity, uh, Jeffrey, the Jeffrey LLC entity, which uh, sits in the Delaware side of the structure. Uh, it is collateral for, in particular, the pre-petition B4 term loan. Um, and we knew almost immediately, right, right from the minute Toys filed, that uh, these IP agreements were going to be a big issue in the case. Because, as you, Mark, as you, exactly as you point out... Um, you know there are payments flowing uh, all the time. You know every year from all of the you know big uh, pieces of Taj value. Those you know the Asia business, the uh, the, the mainland Europe business, back to uh, back to Delaware. Now in January uh, there was a hearing for the assumption of the IP agreements, and basically uh, to, to use the phrase that the council I believe for the for the B four lenders uh, used at that time, they just said basically, listen, we're going to assume these agreements right now because the, because that's what we need to do, but we're, we're going to assume them with big reservations of rights and basically kick the can down the road. <laughs> Since January, I mean things have only gotten worse, right? So so now uh, now we have. Um, the, the, the road is, you know, the, the can has been kicked, and now it's time to figure this out. And I think that's the, you know, that's kind of where we stand today. Um, so uh, to get back to your question, which is really, you know, there, I think there are a number of different ways that this could go. So, so how, you know, how should people think about this then in terms of value? You know, of course they've laid out what uh, the cash is that goes back and forth, at least in terms of the agreement. Uh, I imagine the Taj side thinks that should be lower. Uh, the Delaware side thinks it should be higher. Um, but uh, you know, can this? What are the different forms that this could play out in? I know the Taj side; they have a an outline of an agreement in place, which um, you know talks about um, equity, um, you know, being split. I think it was ninety seven percent. They said of the equity would go to um, to Taj lenders, and then a three percent reserve somewhere else. Um, is do you, do you see this? Do you see that form that that? That plan being stable, can they work within that plan? Is this an auction where um, you know they would they would only accept cash? I mean, what 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 are the different forms that this could take right. where Delaware lenders could potentially get value from these this IP? Right. I, I mean, I, I think you know a good starting point is is and you know we, we kind of talk about the the, the, the Delaware issues here and and uh, pockets of value for for those creditors. The IP is definitely going to be a big part of any any recovery for Delaware creditors, right? And uh, you know the question I think for me really uh, as a starting point is, okay, if I'm a if I'm a Delaware creditor, I'd really like to see kind of all the value or potential value from these IP P agreements pulled up into one you know into one payment, whatever that might look like. 
Um, if I'm sitting on the other side of that and I'm, I'm a Taj lender, uh, you know, I'm not, not particularly interested in starting out my, uh, you know, starting out this reorganized entity by making a, some huge lump sum payment to, to creditors that I'm, you know, to a business that, you know, really I, I have no interest in being a part of. Um, and it's, it's, it's unclear at this point what the, you know, what the meeting in the middle uh, between, between those two positions will be. Uh, you know, the the uh, B four lenders definitely have stipulated um, that they feel that the IP agreement is uh, below market; that they're not getting paid enough. Uh, we haven't heard specifically, to my knowledge, from the Taj side what they think, but you know, you can kind of guess what what their position on that whole uh, on that front's going to be. Uh, so there's a lot. You know, I think this is a big issue. I really do. Um, and I don't. I don't know. You know. I think how it gets resolved uh, will be fascinating to watch, especially as we see now. You know, just so many, so many issues relating to intellectual property, kind of in the broader distress space. No, that's it's great, and, and definitely something uh, that that we, that we keep an eye on. Um, you know, as things continue to evolve here. Uh, now, switching over to another. Uh, potential pocket of value uh, here are, are leases. Um, you know, what's interesting about Toys R Us relative to some of the small mall operators, I guess, that, you know, that we've seen go through bankruptcy is Toys R Us has been around for a while. Um, they're anchor tenants in, uh, in, in many malls uh, where they've been at, and, and that comes with below market leases. And, and this actually could be an issue that we see going forward with some other, um, you know, big, well-established um, retailers as they make it through the bankruptcy process where uh, Toys R Us was actually recently able to get some value for these uh, below below market leases, um, you know, mm -hmm. right? Um, can you talk to us about uh, the auction that they just ran? So, so um, they... Uh, yeah, as they've worked through this process and started closing stores, you know, Toys Delaware leases a large number of stores. And basically what they're doing is saying, hey, we have a lease agreement that runs um, for X number of years. And rather than looking to uh, simply reject and walk away from that lease, what if we just assign that lease because we, you know, because we think potentially it's, it's below market, we can essentially assign that lease to a third party and capture that kind of market discount. And so they auctioned off a number of these leases. Uh, we saw the results come in, I believe, on Friday of last week, and uh, actually were able to uh, receive bids of a total of forty million uh, for that for those uh, for those leases that were auctioned off. Uh, and that you know, I think that's what's fascinating now is is. Um, as we see this, you know, the, as we see the the progression of the case shift from, um, you know, a, a, a reorganization to kind of this this uh, multi pronged, uh, you know, plan for Taj. You know, we're we're talking a little bit about Canada as well, and kind of the reorganization plan there. But there are a number of, of pockets of value like this, you know, like these these leases uh, that you know you wouldn't have really thought about. Uh, in the same context in a reorganization, but now that now that we're where we are, uh, um, really come into play, and, and I think are important. And uh, so the next pocket of value that I want to move to here is um, what's more, what's found in more traditional liquidations um, is the the inventory. Uh, you know, as the company now winds down their their U.S. stores, uh, one of the big potential sources of value is um, are, are, are the toys that are on the shelves. Um, so, you know, to give you a little anecdote, um, 
I, I was in, you know, I have a few small kids, um, so I find myself in Toys R Us uh, frequently. And, um, you know, when we went there um, this past weekend, I was surprised that there's actually really not that much discounting going on. Um, you know, at most I saw things 10% off and, um, you know, things are really honestly flying off the shelves. So, you know, I wanted to go and explore with you, Nick, um, you know, how you think about inventory and what sort of value, uh, you know, they could get from there. You know, first, I guess, starting off with, um, you know, book value here and then working down to what could they, could, what could toys potentially get um, from what's on the shelves now? Sure. Um, so, uh, I think, I guess, starting with kind of what we were given, right, the cleansing materials laid out a, a great uh, budget, which um, really walked through exactly how they, they hope, uh, the debtors, that is, hope that these these uh, store closing sales are going to go. Uh, and what we tried to do in our analysis and uh, kind of walk through on a high level here is say, okay, here are the projections that we've been given, and then, you know, where maybe, where maybe you know, how can we kind of try and verify these numbers a little bit? Uh, so, as a starting point, uh, the the uh, the dip budget projects 1.9 billion dollars in receipts. That's just proceeds from inventory liquidations, uh, proceeds from the sale of furniture and equipment, and uh, as well as very importantly, the kind of going concern sale of the Canada business. Um, and we can tie that back to something, right? So we know at least that. Uh, they disclosed an inventory balance as of March 3rd of $1.34 billion. And we can look back a little bit further and see in 10K that uh, Toys Delaware disclosed furniture and equipment with a book value of uh, $800 million. And then obviously, you know, I think that the, the tough part, the next piece here, or the two, I guess, really big pieces here are what kind of discount should you uh, apply to... to uh, take account of these uh these sales that the mark is uh frequenting on a on a, on a weekendly basis <laughs> and um you know obviously the same for F for furniture and equipment and then uh turning around and looking at canada and that's uh something i think people are really really focused on here is is this auction of the of the canadian business and i think that there's there are some numbers maybe that can you know help guide us to for instance uh the liquidators that are involved here um they have um, set up some fee schedules, um, which which may be some place to start looking at. Right. Um, so it, what we uh, the it, it takes a little bit of kind of parsing to get there, but we know that in the uh, the 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 debtors hired two liquidators to de uh, basically run the sales for their West Coast and East Coast stores, and they those the uh, liquidators are. Um, paid a fee, and then they are also paid an incentive fee depending on what the gross recovery is on these uh, liquidation sales. And that's a gross recovery as a percentage of gross receipts less sales tax um, divided by the aggregate retail value. So it's saying, you know, what would we have sold these for uh, back, you know, kind of in a, in a normal course business setting versus what can we get them for in these liquidation sales? And, and the high point on those fees is 60% or above. So if you go back and say, okay, let's assume that the liquidators are pretty on top of kind of where their fee is going to come out and use that 40% discount as a, you know, absolute worst case. And actually in our analysis, we said in a worst case, maybe you should use that discount on 
uh, inventory rather than on kind of this this retail value to really really say what's the what's the worst possible outcome. Certainly, it's a lot of uh, numbers and percentages to work with, but um, you know it's, it's interesting thinking about it as um, as maybe a floor, right? Because right, um, exactly. you know the the liquidators they've been doing this for a long time. It's the same companies that you see over and over and over again in these um, retail situations. So certainly they know what they're doing and um, they want to make sure that they get paid. Totally, and, and I think you know an interesting point to note is is when you are very conservative like that, they, they can, you know, you, you kind of apply that discount to the budget we've provided and you come out with just about covering their, uh, you know, their uh, ABL and Philo. Mm-hmm. And we know kind of we're, we're told from, from market sources that, that those, uh, you know, that dip ABL and, and the Philo are, are trading close to par. So I think there's, there seems to be an assumption out there that, mm-hmm. that you know, these... Uh, that these uh, that the budgets that were provided are you know kind of can be taken as a reasonable estimation of what what we think might happen here. And and uh, you mentioned Canada too. Um, Canada actually makes money, right? It's it's profitable. Um, so you know what's what's the situation there? Um, any sort of implied value, uh, or how are you thinking about Canada? So uh, again, kind of reading the trying to read a little bit into the budget. Uh, it seems likely that they've included Canada proceeds in that dip budget and are estimating proceeds of about $330 million for, uh, for the sale of the Canadian business. We know from projections for Canada that were provided by the CFO way back uh, in September when toys filed that uh, Canada kind of does a run rate of in between 90 and $100 million of EBITDA. The, the thing that we, you know, I think we don't quite know is uh, what exactly that proceed, um, th- those, you know, that $330 million in proceeds entails. You know, is that is that a an assumption that that's a gross number and is not taking into account, you know, any uh, any claimants at the Canada entity? Or is that kind of the, the net amount that will flow back to Toys Delaware? Um, mm-hmm. And that's, I think, you know, that's a big question that... Uh, at least on our side, um, we're, we're still looking at it and, and trying to get to the bottom of Great. And, and of course, you know, um, I know there's no IP agreements, or at least uh, we haven't seen any IP agreements, but, um, you know, who knows what other costs there are in terms of running those businesses and those stores separately that um, any buyer might think of, um, you know, in terms of a going concern. So we'll definitely see, you know, how that value, and I mean by corporate overhead, things like that, right? right? So we'll definitely see, you know, how, uh, how somebody thinks about um, that EBITDA and and what or if they're willing to bid, right? Exactly, and and you know the uh, the, the the kind of hail mary that counsel for the debtors is talking about is still okay. Sell the Canada business and then roll up some of the best performing uh, U.S. stores into that business. So you know there's still uh, despite the fact that we're now talking about liquidation budgets, you know we're, there's still. Uh, Still hope out there for for Mark to to do his weekend shopping at a, at a, <laughs> at a Toys R Us store near him. I and uh, the entire Fisher family hope that's true. <laughs> so uh, let's keep our fingers crossed. <laughs> Thanks, Nick, and thank you, Julia, too. This has been uh, great. Uh, really appreciate both of you guys coming on. It's clearly, there's a lot of issues still to be uh, figured out here, and we will continue to watch. Karen, Nick, back to you. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg Research podcasts on our media page, or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Karen Lung, and this has been The Week in Reorg. Join us next time on Reorg's weekly podcast. <laughs>